Each episode of the Blind Alchemy podcast is designed to be helpful. Expect comedy. Do not expect consistency or sense to be made. I am Podbot. I was inspired by the Lion Goat podcast. Listen to that show. Today's episode continues a discussion about Gnosticism, a collection of religious ideas and systems from the late 1st century AD among Jewish and early Christian sects, featuring TikTok's DJSKS, aka Lunchbox. live from the kitchen with this rendition of reality as we know it. We are all one and there is nothing new under the sun that shines down here upon the island of mind, which is somewhere adrift in the sea of frequency that creates all of reality. You see, we are connected through this energy. Now, I would like to thank you for joining us today. Ladies and gentlemen, Today's topic is Gnosticism. You're going to ask yourself, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is a school of thought that predates, not narcissism, instead, that's something different. Gnosticism, it means knowledge, Gnostic knowledge, intimate personal knowledge of, well, the things that matter, of the, of the spirit, of God himself. That's what today's topic is. Pull up a chair, uh, pour you a sippy sip of your favorite beverage. I'm sure you have one. Well, now that Norbert Gnomson is uh, not bothering us with gnome facts, gnomeology as he likes to call it, Patricia, can we find somebody else who might know what the fuck is, where did you find that guy? The, the gnome section at the garden store? Patricia, that's not a real place we get guests from. You guys have got to stop that, okay? That, I mean, Franklin was cool, he worked out kind of, and the chef guy, he did all right, but we're trying to go in a serious direction here. Uh, do, do you have Mike, the mediator? Are you, you're making shit up, aren't you, Patricia? That's a dumb name. All right. Well, okay. If that's who you got, that's who you got. Did you find him in the alley? He was smoking a cigarette in the alley. Okay. All right. All right, folks. Here we are with Mike, the mediator. Uh, glad to have you, Mike. What do you know about anything? Are, are, are you qualified? I don't know if I'm qualified. I have some knowledge of uh, Gnosticism. Okay, you're in. Good luck. Right. Thanks for having me. I don't really have any social media to plug. <laughs> this lady, Patricia, came and got me. I like to smoke cigarettes. Yeah, you know, what kind of cigarettes do you smoke, Mike? Winston's. Winston's? Oh, yeah. Winston Light. That's a good brand. Smooth. Not the lights. Oh, not the lights. Damn, you're a red fan. Living dangerously. You gotta carry yourself somehow. Proud of you. Be brave. So we've brought in also our next guest, TikTok Sensation, DJ SKS, or the guest formerly known as DJ SKS, futurely known as Lunchbox. I'm glad to have him with us today. Welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Awesome to catch up with you. Yeah, dude, it is. We are more than willing 
to do this as many times as you want to fucking do this, dude. Oh, I love it. I'm having fun. Okay. Oh, good. I don't get to uh, back and forth with very many people right. that aren't pushing a narrative. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't even pick up the paper. That's one of the few things I've found on TikTok is that, that group of people. Like, uh, one of the first people I connected with was a Freemason. And you see him and you think, this dude's got tattoos all over his face. Oh, okay. But he's been a Freemason for a long, long time. He's 33rd degree or whatever. He's got the little Scottish Rite degree. Uh-huh. But he debunks a lot of stuff. And he's very open about a lot of stuff. You know, it's like, it's not a secret as people try to make it out to be. No, you can't just come sit in a no meeting. But this is what happens. This is what we talk about. And, you know, he, you find out that just like any organization, 95% of the people that are in it aren't in it for any of the secret knowledge stuff. They're in it just for the connections. Mm. They're in it just to be part of something bigger than themselves kind of thing. Networking. Fraternal aspects. But yeah, that's part of what their legacy is. They've preserved this kind of knowledge. A lot of math, mm. which I love. I love diving down that rabbit hole because math always balances. It always equates in the end you know mm-hmm. and that makes sense to me you got to make it make sense <laughs> right right i understand that that's why i don't like the math part it doesn't make sense to me <laughs> <laughs> well it's kind of why i've always been fond of those karmic beliefs you know i believe in karma one of the balance of things if you put evil out there that's what you invite upon yourself <laughs> oh yeah yeah abracadabra means i create what i speak <laughs> there's so much stuff to talk about and we'll get sidetracked this is one thing I like to focus on are the common threads between all of these religions. If you can tie them all together, you're going to get a very strong chord, I think. I've seen a lot of uh, different directions, and they all try to reconcile in one place. I think one of the interesting aspects about the common mythologies is the dragon, because so many different people have some myth of a dragon or you know, an image of a dragon. I think that's very, very interesting. Did they exist? <laughs> Were they just like leftover dinosaurs maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I think they might've just been leftover pterodactyls or <laughs> one of the flying ones. We see that in the, in the Gnostics with the, the Demiurge being the body of a snake with the head of a lion, which is very similar to some concepts of Western European dragon. And I wonder if there's any tie there between that and the snake that gave Eve the apple, this concept of the serpent as the evil bringer or the bringer of knowledge. Or, you know, when you think about dragons and cultures, they're thought of in all mythologies as creatures of great wisdom, creatures of great knowledge. And I wonder if that parallel with the tree of knowledge and the snake in the Garden of Eden. Interesting mixture there. Absolutely. You know, how they love to use their symbolism. Mm -hmm. And that could have been somebody that they were talking about that had that on one of their garments or a banner. That's how they referred to those people that existed under that banner or flew that banner or wore that tunic. And yeah, it could have been influence from that part of the world that they were actually speaking against or trying to villainize that philosophy. You can't have that knowledge over there. (laughs) That's our knowledge. That's secret knowledge. Peasants can't possess. One of the things that I find absolutely amazing, because I am, do I call myself an atheist agnostic? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. Whenever people try to tell me that, that we can't live without 
the moral influence of a certain religion, I just point to China because they are atheists. They don't believe in anything like as a country. <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing. They never have. Back when they were freaking Mongols, they would honor Genghis Khan and stuff. But you know, China is a country. They don't have a national religion. The people don't have a God that they pray to. Yeah, and they're doing just fine. <laughs> yes, they do have the dragons in their mythology. A lot of dragons. They still have that dragon. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, the China Family Panel Studies is a nationally representative, biennial longitudinal general social survey project designed to document changes in Chinese society, economy, population, education, and health. The CFPS conducted a survey in 2016 about religion in China. Although the sample size seems way too small for the population, the study showed the following statistics. No religion, 32%. Buddhism or other Chinese folk religion, 47%. Taoism, folk sects, and other religious organizations, 8%. Christianity, 3%. Islam, less than 1%. Although Chinese general social surveys conducted between 2006 and 2010 found an average between 2 to 3 percent of the population of China declaring to be Muslim, Podboss notices that there is a missing 6 to 9 percent in the sum of these figures. Well, there certainly have been religion-like philosophies, you know, Buddhism or Taoism or Shintoism in the history of China. So I think they're there, but the influence is so small. Like when you actually talk about how many people, they respect the Buddhists, but like less than 10% actually practice it. Do you think that's the communist government outlawing religion? being a major influence on that? Um, no, because it happened long before that. Even before the Communist Party existed, they didn't really have much of a religious belief that wasn't part of their daily life or daily influence. They didn't give all of their thanks and of existence to anything. They didn't expect anything in the afterlife. What do you think would account for that? Lack of influence. So in cultures of Europe or... The Middle East, it was the influence of the generations before that led to the plural God, plural deities. If we subscribe to the idea that the origin of the species of man on the planet occurred in a centralized region, and we think that region is somewhere... North Africa. Between North Africa to... The Middle East, somewhere in that, that area. It's in North Africa, definitely. <laughs> yeah, right. And that is the area where there always has been, as far as the whatever historical record that we've been able to locate through archaeology thus far, it indicates these ancient gods, or at least some sort of portrayal of gods or something similar by the people in cave drawings or, you know, the pottery or whatever it is that we found from those ancient societies, there always seems to be this deus, you know, this concept of deities. But if the people of China 
came from that same origin, then they would have this historical legacy of a religion. So I just think it's interesting, your point about the lack of religion there. I wonder if that was influenced by the leaders at hand who forbade it, or, you know, what would be the reason for that? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of police. There wasn't a whole lot of people to enforce anything. It also kind of defining religion there too. I studied, I dove down the Tartarian rabbit hole one time and found out that really we're just talking about the Mongols, like the leftover Golden Horde after Genghis Khan died. They didn't build anything spectacular. They conquered people. They didn't build stuff. They didn't build anything they couldn't put on a cart and carry to, you know, 100 miles down the road. Uh, that's just the kind of people they were. They were nomads. And one of their cons died, and they all went home. And Europe took the chance to tell everybody in the world that they conquered them when really these guys just went home. You know, <laughs> they're like, yeah, fuck this place. Screw you guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I found out that the Mongols honored their dead, and they had some beliefs. And they knew that the moon kind of reflected the sun. They thought that the sun was a god, but they didn't really pay it reverence. They just kind of considered it a deity, you know. But it wasn't like every day they worshipped it or anything. They didn't really sacrifice anything to it, nothing like that. They just like, yep, yeah, that's the great light up there. And they thought that the moon was a daughter or a son, a child of the sun. But even though they had all this legend they didn't make it a part of daily practice. They were more inclined to offer something to Genghis Khan's remembrance or uh, one of the other Khans, whatever one had just recently died. They were more inclined to offer something to them. And when they purified stuff, they passed between two fires, which I believe Christ tells us that's one of the ways you can purify stuff is through fire. <laughs> but they would pass between two fires and it, they would pay homage to one of the cons, not a deity. You know what I mean? And it was just literally paying respects to it. It wasn't like they were asking for anything. Passing through the fire was the process of being cleansed. Were the cons deified in the same way that the emperors were deified later? Oh, absolutely not. No, they were just respected as like great warriors and you pay your respects to them. That was what you did. But you didn't ask them for anything. And they weren't really responsible. They weren't given credit for all of your existence. <laughs> it's kind of like, thank you, Angie. You just paid them respects, poured one out for the homies, you know, that kind of thing. That was the taxes, everybody's homies. Interesting. This was part of the teachings that the Gnostics were in possession of. Mm -hmm. This idea that you weren't beholden to any certain divine power. You are the divine power. You are. You are both good and bad. The decision's in you. <laughs> I'm curious about that. So if you don't mind, talk more about that. Is that in a specific one of the Gospels? Uh, I wouldn't say it's in one of the Gospels, because a lot of those still played into the Christianity aspect of it. But it's just the idea that they weren't corralling themselves to only Christian teachings. The fact that they were open to still read things from other cultures to accept their value and, and apply that philosophy to their own lives. I'm a great fan of the Stoics, and I see a lot of Stoicism in some of the Gnostic teachings. Some of it kind of overflowed the selflessness of Stoicism. Are you a fan of the idea that the Gnostic were 
in the not really a quantifiable group, but it's more of a term that's just applied to quite a variety of different uh, belief systems, or as you say, the search for knowledge. We use this term Gnostic currently in reference to the uh, Gospels that were found in the Nag Hammadi discovery in 1945, but there is this other idea that this is more of a reference to a historical time. Now we will take a break for some advertisements. Please support our sponsors. Just imagine this could be your advertisement. Please reach us at the blind alchemy podcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship. And now back to the show. Sit back, relax. Take a deep breath, and when you feel it in your chest, exhale into the now moment. And join me, the Blind Alchemist, as we conduct a little blind alchemy. There is this other idea, the concept of the Renaissance. It's the description of a philosophical period of thought rather than a group of individuals or some sort of coherent theology or philosophy, what have you. Consider the time period that we're talking about. So Christ has been crucified, right? And any kind of Jewish rule is coming to an end. It's, it's over. And the next 300 years around the Mediterranean, we're looking at the Greek-Roman struggle for land, for knowledge, for the language that's used for culture. And it wasn't until the Catholic Church started to be formed in the three and four hundreds that you see an organization amongst any certain group. For those 300 years or so right after his death, there's no real leadership. There's no one vein of thought. There's all these people that are writing all this stuff and some of it's true. What do we know what's true? You know, you have 300 years of people debating what part of this is accurate and what part of it's not. Why is this accurate? Why is this not? And should this be included and should it not? So, like I said earlier, the Gospel of Thomas is one of those, if you read one Gnostic thing, read that, because it was still known the whole time. That was one of the few texts that we had pieces of from that two, three hundred AD. And then it was always in question who wrote it. That was why we didn't ever completely include it, because it was always in question. But then when we find something like what we find at Nang Hamadi, now we have a copy of Thomas that's from 200 AD. That's 150 years before Luke or John. <laughs> I think Matthew is the only thing that we can date older than Thomas, you know, Matthew or Mark maybe. But yeah, like it was around at the same time. It has the same validity. Fragments from the Gospel of Mary. Why was that never included? <laughs> I had a whole list of them here. Well, you mentioned the Zoroasters and... Letter of Barnabas, the Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Truth, Gospel of the Shepherd. Do you know about the Codex Sinaiticus? It was found at the base of Sinai. They date this to about the 4th century, but it wasn't really uncovered until like the late 1700s, 1800s. And this is a codex between Coptic and Greek? I believe so. Okay. There was another codex that was found about the same time that kind of gave us a lot of interest into the Gnostic writings. 
Have y'all ever heard of the Pista Sophia? Yes. And by the way, do y'all know any Masons, Freemasons? I did. Not personally. This is part of that super secret knowledge that they've kept on to the whole time. It's nothing evil about them. This is just the kind of stuff that they kept in discussion in the debate. The Pista Sophia? It was discovered in 1773. It was possibly written between the third and fourth century. Right. So you got something that's written in two or 300 AD, but it didn't show up until the late 1700s. But we see a lot more about Jesus and Mary and Mary Magdalene. Yeah, it, this knowledge has been the drip feed. You know what a drip feed is? Yes, yes. <laughs> what if that whole, like, I'll be back in a thousand years or whatever, it was really like 2,000 years, and the findings at Nag Hammadi, that is him coming back. That's Christ's return right there. <laughs> it's an interesting concept. I've noticed this huge renaissance almost. There is a lot of people that are delving back into that side of Christianity. Like they still want to be Christian, but they just can't fit into the church. And they decide rather to read all this other stuff, uh, absorb all this other information that we have. I actually get to sit down face-to-face -face with uh, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor on a regular basis, most holidays. Really? My in-laws are Seventh-day Adventists, and the pastor comes over for the big feast. Interesting. So one of these last few Thanksgiving or so, I asked him, just cold out the gate, what he felt about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I didn't want to lead into it at all. I just wanted to get that initial reaction. And he was like, yeah, I think it just strengthens everything that the Bible says. And I, then I asked him, have you read it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I'm like, why not? <laughs> if you love Christ so much, why wouldn't you want to read everything that you can about him? Right. That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I want to know more about him than you do, obviously. <laughs> I'm one of the few people that I believe Christ was a human being that walked the face of the earth. I just can't put faith in it that he was the son of a deity. You know, that's my only shtick. Like, he might have performed miracles. I don't know. You know, he might have done some pretty cool things. I, I imagine he was a really cool dude. Probably to know him would have been awesome. I do agree. <laughs> but I have a lot of friends that aren't exactly at the top of the social chain that are awesome to know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call him messianic leaders or not, but right. <laughs> he's a cool dude with a cool philosophy. He's never fucked anybody over as far as I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's everywhere. I think it was a philosophy that they wanted to build on his popularity more than his word. They wanted to build on his popularity. He was like the first Disney kid, you know? <laughs> he got sold out quick. <laughs> and then we capitalized on him for the next 2,000 years. <laughs> And when you say they, you mean the Catholic Church or the Christian Church? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> church leaders in general, the power struggle. The Catholic Church is just the one who wound up with the rights. <laughs> <laughs> Our name on the book. We put it there ourselves so we know. What about the sayings of Sextus? Do you know about this one? Do tell, do tell. Okay, so this is part of the knowledge that's kind of circulating in the area at the time. A lot of it's written in Greek because Greek was the language of the learned person. And this is why a lot of the last part of the Old Testament, the first part of the New Testament was written in Greek, because if you wanted something to be circulated and read across the world, that was the language you wrote it in. Everything else was pretty localized. Like English is the language of the world today. Greek was the language of the world back then. Is that what you're saying? Well, it was one of the languages that was widely read. And, and as soon as Greek came onto the scene, Latin challenged it. But 
at this period of time, Greek was what was spoken and written and shared amongst the learned people, like, you know, people that actually wrote letters that, that meant something that would be posted and read by many people. And you, if you wanted to post something in your square that other cultures could read, people from other cities, that's the language you would post it in. Assuming that we're ignoring Asia and Africa. Well, we're talking about Gnostic Christians. This is their little area. True. The people that they were encountered would be more likely to speak Greek than anything else. So that's what a lot of it was written in. Right. In doing so, in learning to write Greek, they got Greek knowledge. That was part of how they learned Greek was by learning Plato and Pythagoras. And, and so that philosophy is mixed into some of it. The sayings of Sextus is one of the things they found with some of the Gnostic texts. I just thought that was something. What, Ted? So what were we saying? You were telling us about the sextits, the sextits, the sextits. Sayings of Sextus. The sayings of Sextus. Yeah, there's a lot of saying. I love that. That's the title of so much stuff. One of my favorite books is The Golden Sayings of Epictetus. Epictetus. He was one of the first Stoics, Epictetus. Yeah, he was a slave to an emperor, but the emperor was Marcus Aurelius. So he was one of the most grounded emperors. He wasn't very full of himself. He was a very down-to-earth kind of ruler. Not so much a wild and crazy guy. Yeah, like he was friends with the lower class, and that's why. You know, he wasn't somebody that played into politics as much. The people's emperor. So what, what are the sayings of the sextets? It's Pythagorean in nature. <laughs> that makes sense. Sentences of sexus is another name for it. Some of the sexist stuff was about reflecting on yourself, right. self-examination. And the rest of it's kind of like, don't be too anxious to please other people. Do what's right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just because this is what people want, you can't give into it. And nothing is as precious as wisdom. Again, that's the whole message. They just want wisdom and knowledge. It doesn't matter where it comes from. I wonder sometimes, I ask myself, what exactly is the knowledge of good and evil? Is this knowledge that we are seeking currently part of it? This understanding, what is that specifically? Is it the knowledge of mortality or immortality? It's not the knowledge of immortality. It's just the knowledge of innocence. Yeah, there we go. That's a good way to put that. Yeah, it's just knowledge of innocence. But if we don't learn the difference, if we remain ignorant then we will do evil unto others and not realize that we're doing evil unto others. You know, just because we didn't choose to learn what's right and wrong doesn't mean other people didn't. Right. <laughs> I thought the knowledge of good and evil was the carnal knowledge. It is not entirely carnal. It's just like the innocence of a child. When the child kills a little pet and he doesn't realize that he's actually killing the little squirrel or whatever hamster is he at fault even though he killed a creature because he didn't know it's the innocence of not knowing in his eyes he remains faultless because he never knew that that was something that was wrong to have a fault but in the strict sort of biblical historical context the ability for adam and eve to have children begins with the knowledge of good and evil, right? I don't know. That's when humans beget other humans, according to that historical 
record if you consider that a historical record. I think that might be when they became aware of it, but I don't know if that is strictly when procreation began. I always assumed that that was... It was there the were 37 children before Cain and Abel. You didn't know that. I can't believe you didn't know this. Oh, wait, your knowledge is primarily known, sir, so I keep see why. <laughs> yes, the pleasure of the flesh. There is some sexual element to it because of the word beguiled. It means to rape, basically. So there's some sexual element to it and some carnal thing. There's the only true sin, though, is theft. Everything else is just a version of that. Have you ever heard of that philosophy? Uh -uh. Yeah, every other sin is just a variation of theft. If you kill something, you steal life. Right. From it. If you lie about somebody, you steal the truth from them. Every kind of sin can be boiled down to you taking something. Oh, wow. Apart from murder or rape, I do feel like theft is one of the greatest evils that man can bestow upon another man. I would agree with that. Even if you're talking about rape, you're stealing somebody's sex from them. You're taking something from somebody. It's all a form of theft. Their innocence or their um, approval or their permission. Yeah, their and compliance. If we speak strictly on a scientific perspective of man's current scientific knowledge of sexual reproduction, now we will take a break for some advertisements. Please support our sponsors. Just imagine this could be your advertisement. Please reach us at theblindalchemypodcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship. And now, back to the show. There's only a few species which experience the concept of sexuality with mutual approval. Let's just put it that way. Most species reproduce in some format where it's almost like rape in every sense. Instinctual, animalistic. I mean, it's not consensual necessarily. I would say there's a few species where it's consensual, but in a lot of species, it's really a form of dominism. Okay, so in a lot of your reptilian and your um, bird species, especially the bird species, they actually do things to attract a mate. Absolutely, yeah. All species, I would say. They try to impress the mate. So I think both of them are consenting there. But a lot of your predatory animals, especially your, you know, a lot of your predatory mammal, the male does just take. I think that's almost a mammalian thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in the case of reptiles or birds, I think that sexuality begets attraction. I think there's no form of disexual sexuality, you know, uh, sexuality that requires gametes from partners that are of two different sexes. There's no form of that that exists without some form of attractive element. I think that's basically a requirement. And even in species that are non-sexual or asexual, they even have forms of attractance. But just because you're trying to attract a partner, that doesn't necessarily mean consent. You know, a flower tries to attract a bee to spread its pollen around to other flowers so that it can sexually reproduce. Sure, the bee gains some benefit from the flower. It's able to make pollen, but it's not necessarily agreeing to be an agent of their sexual reproduction. It's not giving consent. <laughs> Are you saying that flowers rape bees? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying in a sense, 
all sexuality, you know, there's a certain level of cortical. That's the birds and bees stories that my parents did not tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that without some level of and the nuns just stand by and witness this shit <laughs> oh <my laughs> taking goodness. place blatantly in the garden. <laughs> the gnomes, in fact, are... Uh, <laughs> the gnomes are complicit in the rape of the bees. They're not complicit. They are agents. This is one of the gnomes' roles. They just hate the bees as much as everybody else. They're like, good on the little fuckers, you stabby bastards. The gnomes try to attract as many bees as possible. I don't know what the birds have to do with the birds and the bees, but it's really just the bees and the other insects. The gnomes are quintessential to the process of the birds and the bees, and in fact, they're agents of attracting all forms of bees and other uh, life forms that are spreading the seeds in the garden. This is well known as a role of the gnomes. Tactic Gnostics, though. <laughs> I think the Gnostics were trying valiantly to stop the aggression of the Catholic Church. <laughs> of the little bees. I mean, the altar boy. <laughs> <laughs> the rape of the Catholic religion, of the pleroma, of the you know, multiple religions and other philosophies. No, you got to look at Valentinius. I mean, the church didn't exist when he did. They created the church to condemn the motherfucker, you know? <laughs> like, this guy is such a bastard. <laughs> He's out there talking about priests and personal understanding of God. You can't have that. His heresy, his school of thought, because that's what heretes means, and that's where the word heretic comes from. Basically, all his stuff is written from his perspective, not somebody else's. He experienced this two-way communication between him and God, or whatever, and it's personalized. And I don't know why the church would want to condemn that. The valid argument back then when you were uh, convicted of heresy was, hey, I'm not teaching what that guy did. Like Arius, his entire argument was, I'm not a heretic because I didn't teach what Valentinius taught. So did I have a point or did I lose No, I, I think I'm following you. What was his name again? Valentinius. Valentinius. And he had a school of thought, which was the heretical school of thought. Uh, not completely. Well, they were all heretical. Heretical with respect to the Catholic Anything church. that wasn't falling in line. Yeah, anything that didn't pick up the mainstream orthodox narrative that, you know, we are experiencing that currently with our media, but that's a whole other topic and conversation. Could be a whole other podcast. So Valentinus was schooled in Alexandria before it burned. <laughs> he stopped the fire. Maybe he ran from it. I don't know. But there is a concept that they talk about 15, I'm going to murder this word, Syzygies. Have you seen this word? S-Y-Z-Y-G-I-E-S. No. They were the sexually complementary pairs. Okay. I have not seen that. Extrapolate, sir. Do you remember the woman I mentioned earlier, Naria? She was one of the Syzygies of Adam, okay. which means at some point in time they made it oh, okay. under that philosophy. You know, that's not recorded in regular Old Testament stuff. <laughs> and it's not even recorded where they did it. It just, they are recorded as being a pair that did. Okay. So are these Syzygies demigods or are they like aeons? Not necessarily. They're like of the first men, the first ones. And these are the pairs that were paired. Okay. Seth is considered, he's got the ones that he was paired with. You know, he's one of the first race. He was a pure blood. The original couples, if you will. Which I'm convinced in that culture, the old men and women decided who got to marry who. 
and you wanted to marry somebody, you had to go ask. And it wasn't just asking the other family. It, you had to ask the elders. And I think it's because the elders knew who was really whose brother and sister and father and daughter. And, you know, they're the ones that knew the true lineages and they would kind of help guide and they knew all the dirty little secrets <laughs> so they could make sure you didn't wind up with your first cousin. I see. That's always been a point of the biblical creation myth that has led me to have great sense of hesitation. The concept of Adam and Eve being the original male and female and that all of the hereditary legacy of that original pairing somehow created all of the humans on the planet. But we see genetically that when people that are directly related reproduce, it causes great genetic strain and it's something that causes issues with all biological species as we know it. You can't have sex with your family. It either produces an offspring that's sterile or it produces an offspring that has some great genetic flaws. So I've always had an issue with that concept of like the original family. Well, that completely breaks down when Cain leaves and goes to the land of Nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that they're the only humans on the whole planet completely dissipates when he goes and what is it? He took his wife from among them or there he knew his wife. Yeah. So like just the fact that there's another group of people already there. <laughs> you see, there's a school of thought that is on the eighth day after, you know, God created everything in six days rested. And then on the eighth day, he created more people. Okay, Adam and Eve are just the first ones. Ah, back to the drawing board. We fucked that one. They're considered <laughs> the beasts because they're just other humans. They were cool, but can we get them in some other colors? <laughs> <laughs> we need to make every color of the rainbow available. <laughs> Is it possible that the people that inhabited the land of Nod were Neanderthals? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Too far back. And Neanderthals were probably south of where Adam and Eve in their garden were. I think Neanderthals are still mostly in Northern Africa. Some of them might have been around Turkey, north of them. My point is that we think of Adam and Eve as the original humans, but evolution would lead you to think that there could be many other similar species. Hominids. Hominids, <laughs> if you will. Yes, exactly. Hominids. We have them. We find them more and more. Right. Every couple of decades or so, we'll find some weird species that was like, Homo sapien interacted with a different one, or a Homo erectus reacted with the Neanderthal, you know? <laughs> and we wind up with another type of hominid. Humans were the only ones that really propagated and took hold and survived. Or were the best killers. <laughs> Maybe. That's how we go. You know, there's an argument. I told you that I spend the holidays with the Seventh-day Adventists. Do you know any of these people? Have you met this denomination? I had a friend that was a Seventh-day Adventist, but I didn't really uh, speak with her very much about her theology or their practices. I know very few things about that. Is that related to the Zoroastrians? I don't know, but there is some unique philosophy in their ideology. Do you know if she was a vegetarian? She was. That is very popular within the Seventh-day faith is vegetarianism and they try to follow those old testament dietary laws and in doing so it's just easier to be vegetarian 
and that kind of automatically meets all of the dietary laws, you know, mm. if you just omit meat altogether. Some of them will eat it under very specific conditions, but yeah, I've seen the cookout with the Seventh-day Adventists, and I only cooked four steaks. <laughs> that was for me and my family. <laughs> Anyway, one of the things that they pointed out was that Adam and Eve didn't eat meat, that they were told they could eat of any of the trees. They weren't told they could eat the animals. They didn't eat animals until you meet like Moses and them. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. In the garden, they didn't eat meat. They only ate vegetables. So that's one of the ways they kind of sanctify what they do, their choice and being vegetarians. But there's something about Adam and after they're kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve are made garments and their animal skins or whatever. I wonder if that's where we start killing animals. When we left the garden? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the original sin. We committed the original sin. We took knowledge. <laughs> we stole knowledge. Shiny ass apples. <sighs> don't perpetuate that lie, please. We don't know what that fruit was. It was not an apple. It was knowledge. That's all it was. It was knowledge. Here, look. Here's some shiny knowledge. Right? That same story, if you take it back to Prometheus, and it's like, here's fire. You know? <laughs> well, you done fucked up now. <laughs> <laughs> now they get to cook stuff. <laughs> now they're going to find out just how delicious those animals are. <laughs> we haven't even gotten around to the Muslim Gnostics yet. <laughs> oh, my God. There's Muslim Yeah, absolutely, dude. Every time you have a dominant religion, there is a group within that that wants to know everything. And so they apply that knowledge from wherever to what they're learning locally. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's Gnostic Muslims. Absolutely. <laughs> they have a really cool concept with their little demons. Oh, what are they called? Jinn. Jinn. Yeah, the jinn. Because Solomon controls them. He controls an army of them. <laughs> so, like, there's a human that is taking control over some kind of supernatural force, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty wild concept to conceive. Do you think there's any parallels between the gem and the aeons? I don't think so. Uh -uh. Uh, the aeons were probably more divinely created, as they were of a higher divine rank, uh, I think. The jinn were like foot soldiers, literally. They were created out of ash and ember and wind. Almost like an orc or something in other <laughs> mythologies. Damn orcs. What about the concept of the aeons versus the angels? Is there a parallel there between the concept of the aeon and the angel? And is an angel just a minor aeon or just an agent like the jinn is an agent of the god? Well, again, I think the aeons are like a higher rank. I think those were a small group of divine beings. They're the ones that a lot of people credit with the flood. A lot of the Gnostics, the archons and, or the aeons are the ones that actually flooded the earth. And Yahweh is the one that warned Noah that it was going to happen, you know? <laughs> I find it's interesting in these pantheotic uh, myths that there's the pantheon in each of them. There's the pantheon of the Greek gods. The gods have these different facets of man's personality that's enacted in each of the gods or facets of nature's personality that's enacted in each of the gods. Like you have the god of war, or the god of jealousy, or the god of love, or the god of whatever. And there's this comparison that I find with the concept of the aeon as the facets of God's personality or the facets of God's knowledge or the facets of God's wisdom. And 
there's this interesting duality between the different types of the Gnostics, where certain Gnostics think of this as almost like the Aeons are, like you said, Archons or Archetypes or separate gods or separate beings from God. Yet there's this other concept where the Pleroma of God is all of it, and it is all just one God. There's, you know, that sort of non-dualistic concept in the Gnostics as well. This is why I sort of asked that question a long time ago, if you believe in the idea of, like, Gnostics as, like, a group of individual thoughts that are just all kind of lumped together, or if you think of it as a religion in itself. Now we will take a break for some advertisements. Please support our sponsors. Just imagine this could be your advertisement. Please reach us at the blind alchemy podcast at gmail.com to provide sponsorship. And now, back to the show. It's not really a religion in itself. It's not like Christianity versus some other religion. Well, Christianity in its art really didn't have a defining structure. It didn't have one until the Orthodoxy Church was brought into being. So all these guys that got together and sat and talked about all this stuff, kind of like we're doing now, and they're like, okay, this is how I see it. You guys agree with how I see it, and there's one group of Gnostics. There's another group of guys that do the same thing, but it's a little different. Uh, so That's because one of those little groups had a certain book that the other ones didn't have. Right. One of them would have the book of Judas or Barnabas or Enoch, and the other one, the little group didn't have access to that. They might have books that the first group didn't have. <laughs> the knowledge wasn't collected. It wasn't organized until that orthodoxy came along. So in a way, like the disciples, the 12 disciples of Jesus could have been considered a Gnostic group in comparison to the other Gnostic groups searching for knowledge. Oh, I absolutely believe yeah, Thomas totally. was a root for Gnostic groups completely. Thomas was definitely like the Paul. <laughs> the disciples didn't even agree on the structure of the church. You know what I mean? There's some argument between Luke and Peter about how things work. So it wasn't congealed into a structure until the church came. Then they saw all this shit that had what they would consider esoteric or secret knowledge, not for the public. So like, oh, kill those motherfuckers off. Stop them. A lot of the reason was because they couldn't validate authorship. Yeah. And that is what led to what we call apocryphal writings. That's why the Catholic Church never stuck them in where they belong is because they couldn't agree on who actually wrote them. You know, you fast forward to today and now we know that Hell, the people that they thought wrote the original Gospels probably didn't write them. <laughs> or that they were written hundreds of years after those people were thought to have been alive. Exactly. Luke didn't write that shit. <laughs> Neither did John. <laughs> Matthew was probably illiterate. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know about Matthew, but yeah, I'm sure some of them were illiterate and they have books attested to their name. Do you think it's possible that the different Gnostic groups had different Christ figures as well. Ooh. Like the Christ of the 12 disciples that is the Christ of the Christian church today. Is it possible that the Jesus of the Gnostic who were of the book of Thomas or the book of John or the other Gnostic gospels had a different person in mind or a different Christ head in mind? I'm not sure if I could find any record of anyone else being crucified 
that had such a following. You know what I mean? Well, I mean conceptually. It all kind of points back to actual one instance um, and one figure. You know, later, before we see a lot of Gnostic writings, we actually see Roman writings talking about Christians, even within that first century. Pliny the Elder, he was asking, hey, what do I do with all these Christians that are hanging around? And I mean, this was like within 90 years, I think. <laughs> but as far as like a bunch of different figures, I don't know, there would be other writings about other figures. I do know there were other people named Jesus. <laughs> sure, of course. Jesus, son of Sirach was one of them. That's one of the books in the Apocrypha. And it's not the same Jesus. It's a completely different Jesus. <laughs> but he wasn't crucified either. <laughs> right. And I don't think he was ever referred to as the Christ. I think Jesus is just a name, but the Christ moniker that's applied to Jesus is the important part there. I sometimes think about the Jesus story and wonder if it's a retelling of a story that's much older from a, other cultures. Uh, like, you know, the story of the Buddha or the story of Siddhartha. It's it's sort of the same character in different cultures. I think some of the stories about Christ are not Christ. One of the ones that I really have a bone to pick with is the water to wine. That seems like a really petty parlor trick to me for the powers of a divine being. Why that's not necessary to like save people's lives. This whole wedding, there's not somebody that needs to walk better or see better or some other miracle that could actually help people. Water to wine seems kind of menial thing for you to use your powers as a god on. <laughs> it is an unusual miracle in comparison. That is a miracle that is written about Dionysus. You know, long before Christ was a figure, that was a different miracle that was written about somebody else. Okay, let me see. I really, really do believe it's the same story retold throughout time periods, you know what I mean? There's the concept of the lazy O, if you know what this is. The scribes, instead of writing S-U-N for the ball of fire sun, which is most likely what they were talking about, they uh, make an O. So we get the sun, like the man sun, instead of the sun itself. There is a, a cosmological, astrological tie to the entire structure. Twelve disciples, twelve zodiacs, one sun. I would almost agree if that didn't apply anywhere but English. <laughs> <laughs> you do make a good point, but these Gnostics were trying to tie these various different myths, like the pantheon of gods from Greek, or the pantheon of gods from Rome, or the pantheon of gods from Egypt, and of course in the Egypt mythos, there's the sun god Ra, who is the god of gods, or, or may represent the concept of the pleroma and the Gnostic faith, but I don't know. I think that there's something to the concept of before written history, history was linguistic and passed down through stories. And I have to agree that the sort of like tie-in of these different myths through these different cultures, it's fascinating to say the least, you know, that there are these same stories like we were talking about the flood or uh, this concept of the sun being the source of energy. Because the sun, quite frankly, is the source of energy, you know, for all the planet, for the planet and everything that we know, it is the source of energy that that feeds us other than the source of energy that comes from the center of the earth. Right. It's the what we see as humans on the surface 
it's all provided by the sun. <laughs> yeah, and before we had any kind of basis for comparison, it is the God, you know? It is the thing that makes all the life happen, right? If you have no critical awareness of what that energy is or where that energy might come from, the other things you can compare it with are the wind and the rain and the magma that comes from the volcano or the earthquake, but those are the things that have a great amount of power that's much more than what any human or any other animal seems to have power of. That's why I think gravity is the source of everything. Like that's, that's what created the sun, right? That's what holds the sun together. That's what holds us to the sun. <laughs> well, so gravity is this concept that there is a force that causes attraction between things with mass. Is that what you mean when you say gravity? Absolutely. Okay. And the more mass there is, the more gravity there is. And mass is the quantity of energy that's contained within some boundary, right? Like I was saying earlier, I wanted to define all the dimensions. Mass is one of those dimensions I think you could quantify, you know? Why isn't it considered a dimension? <laughs> well, we conceptualize three dimensions, width and height and distance in some diagonal plane. And space-time describes all three of the dimensions. But the concept of mass as a separate dimension, I think, redefines the term dimension. And you're right, in string theory, they come up with these concepts of more dimensions in order to make the mathematics work. But is that a weakness in the math? Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like cheating in a way. If you want the equation to work, you add extra dimensions to make the equations work. That's what I was trying to, I was trying to fill in the blank. Yeah. If you wanted 10 or 11 dimensions to make your string theory work or relativity work, I wanted to go find those dimensions. What are they? Like mass. Mass is something that you can measure, you can quantify. Your ratio of mass to your volume determines your density. So there's another factor. Density is a factor that determines whether something's a star or not. You know, <laughs> it could be a quantifiable dimension of something. I agree that the word... Your mass determines your gravity. So your mass really determines whether or not you're a satellite of a planet or a star. Agreed. Are you the satellite of an energy source or are you the energy source? <laughs> it really becomes an issue of semantics when you talk about dimensions versus dimensions, right? Are dimensions a description of space and relative direction in space? Or are dimensions a description of the qualities of matter? If we talk about dimensions as a description of the qualities of matter, I would agree with you 100% that density and mass are dimensions of matter. And can you separate matter or energy and space, is there one without the other? I don't know. That's a very no. hard question to answer. Everything is energy. All matter is energy. Space is just a measurement of two different energies moving in different directions, right? You want to tie this back to the Gnostics? <laughs> yes, in less than nine minutes. One of the famous quotes, Christ said, if you split a log, you will find me. If you move a rock, I'll be there. <laughs> everywhere. He was everywhere, all throughout the universe. 
<laughs> well, that puts a button on it. Everything has gravity too. Every object, anything that has mass, has an amount of gravity to it. Well, sure, and the energy that makes the mass or the energy that makes the matter, one might argue, is that concept of the god, the whatever it is that they're describing as the light, as the origin, as the creator, as the everything. The everything is the everything. I don't know. <laughs> but that's one way to look at it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have probably taken up way too much of your valuable time, and we've probably gotten way off topic too many times. So you're probably bored with this episode. I hope not. Please let us know what you think. Come back and see us. Show us love. Like, subscribe, and support. Today's guests have been Mediator Mike and our original guest, TikTok Sensation, DJ SKS, or the guest formerly known as DJ SKS, futurely known as Lunchbox. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. It was a lot of fun. I'd love to do this again sometime. And y'all have a good one. We're glad that you guys could all be here. So uh, find them. Follow them. You gotta love them. DJ SKS. Lunchbox. Thank you for joining us here at the Blind Alchemy Podcast. I am your host, the Blind Alchemist. I'm your host your guests on the quest as we float through the sea of frequency that we call reality. Love you, ladies and gentlemen. Be safe out there. Come back and talk to me, all right? We would love to receive your feedback and your questions for advice. Please email us or send us a voicemail. Our address is theblindalchemypodcast at gmail.com. Find, like, review, subscribe, and contact us on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, Twitter, and YouTube at The Blind Alchemy Podcast. All one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player. We are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm slash The Blind Alchemy Podcast. Please tell all your friends, enemies, and any strangers to listen to our podcast. This will help us bring joy to everyone. Text-to-speech services were provided by freetts.com and readloud.net. Public domain music for today's show was provided by fmusescore.org. Some music were provided by the Internet Archive Collection of the Armed Forces Radio Service and other attribution-free old radio productions. Information was provided by Wikipedia. We would like to extend a special thank you to the world's greatest musicians, sound designers, and engineers at Hairline Productions for their help with the composition, performance, editing, production, and recording of both the original music and today's show. Please like their content on SoundCloud.